You know, in, a, in an age and a time when it seemingly all the churches want to drag down the image of who God is, to bring Him down to our level so that lost people are comfortable, so that saved people don't feel like they need to be more Christ-like and less like themselves. I just, I just want to say, let's, let's not make a God in an image of ourself. Listen, we're going to read a passage this morning and dig into it a little. And it's going to set Christianity apart from all of the other world religions. This passage will. Because in the other religions, and especially the mysticism and easternness of our day, the thought is that we are somehow moving like drops of water into one big ocean of eternity. Where we're all going to be swallowed up in a like, one essence, one being, that we're all going to be God. And that's the hope that they preach. And what Christ preaches, and what Paul preaches, and what the Bible declares in the passage we're going to see today, is we're not going to be swallowed up into one thing. But in eternity, we are going to be distinct, eternal, incorruptible, strong, spiritual bodies. In the very image of Christ. Distinct and unified in Him. It separates Christianity from everything else. In an age where the church growth gurus and the people who pro profess to know the most about how to gather the masses, I pray that no matter where we go or what we turn into here at Grace Fellowship, that we always preach that our God is not like us. He is seated in the heavens. And He does whatever pleases Him. And that we see ourselves as having only hope in Christ, not in ourselves. I mean, we think about it. We gather weekly to exposit Scripture through song, through reading, through confessing, through preaching. And I'm sure some of you leave saying, I wish I'd have been told maybe a few things about how to be a better husband, how to be a better daddy. I wish Carlton would just talk to us a little more about practical things. Listen, you'll be a better daddy. When Christ is held up as the precious jewel that He is. And in seeing that jewel, you long to be like Him. You'll be a better husband and wife when He is set apart and held high and the eyes of our minds and our hearts are focused on Him. Not on being a better husband. Not on being a better wife. But being like Him. There is no self-help guru in the world 
There is no quick fix five step program to make you better at what you want to be in life. There is one Christ, the Son of the only God, and in being made like Him by His Spirit, we will be transformed, made into His image. The only hope we have is this Word which He's given us. And that's why we turn to it every week without fail. It's the only hope we have to know Him in His Word. This week I was thinking, you know, there are those who charge that guys like me worship the Bible. You've heard it, I'm sure. I just want to tell you, I don't worship the Bible. But sometimes it is hard for me to know the difference as I study His Word from the Word on the page and the Word from heaven. I admit it. I'm guilty. There are moments. It's not always, but there are moments when I'm laid in front of His Word, open and bare, seeing Him for who He is, seeing myself for who I am. And if you walked in on it, you would think I was worshiping a book. But only if you don't know the God who wrote the book. But if you know Him, then you can't help but want His Word and want it deep inside your heart. If you don't love His Word, listen, I'll just be blunt with you. If you don't love His Word, you don't love Him. You're fooling yourself to say you're a Christian. You don't love to read His Word, study His Word, hear His Word preached, taught, sung about. When He comes... You won't recognize Him. And He won't know you. You must know His Word. We must know His Word. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because I don't have any self-help for you. I don't know how to make you a better person. But I do trust God that He knows how to make us all into His image. And we're looking at 35 through 49. This passage. It's long. Steve rolled his eyes. When I gave him the title of the message and the passage. And then he said, part one. (laughs) We do have an advantage, as I told Steve. The first half of this passage is simply an analogy. The only thing I can do with this analogy is make it more complicated. And that's not what I want to do. Okay? It's such an earthly analogy, analogy that I'm going to explain it, hopefully making sure we don't have any misconceptions about the analogy, and then move into the latter half of the passage where it's applied. All right, but I confess, sometimes I can be complicated. So if I get complicated, you know, just raise your hand up, and I'll, I'll try to get uncomplicated. And I might think you're worshiping God when you raise your hand. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, we haven't read it this morning, so I do want to read it together. Verse 35, following up his paragraph where he attacks his opponents who don't believe in the resurrection. As I said last week, he turns their argument against them. He uses their own words. Don't you hate that in an argument? When you have said something and then the one you're arguing against takes what you said and makes you look foolish? That's what Paul's just done to these false teachers. You see... I'm convicted and convinced 
that those who don't know God, which he speaks of in verse 34, are the very ones who are arguing in Corinth that there is no resurrection. And now he moves on. In verse 35, he says, But someone will ask. He's anticipating. Paul does this throughout his letters. If you read Romans, if you read 1 Corinthians, he anticipates the questions which someone might ask him in opposition. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? I hear this whiningness in their voice. How are the dead raised, Paul? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. I I don't know how much more blunt he can be. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as He has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised up in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised up a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Some people would rather translate that, and I think both translations are good. Let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. They see it as a, as a challenge from Paul at the end of his argument to be like Christ. I think either of those is great. I don't want to weigh in on an argument. It's God's Word. It's perfect. It meets us where we are. And where you are, some of you, is right here. You, you're saying to yourself, if I was only two inches taller, then I'd be perfect. I'd be the perfect height. I'm, you know, in the conversation, we say, oh, you know, I'm trying to lose 10 pounds because then when I get down to that perfect weight, I'll be perfect. I'll be happy. If my nose were longer, if my nose were shorter, if my eyes were brown or blue or green or hazel, 
If my skin were darker, if my skin were lighter, if my cheeks were higher, that's just another way to say chubby, or if they were thin, if my ears were smaller, if they just weren't, it's not that they're small, I don't want to they just stick out funny. If they just didn't stick out funny, then I'd be happy. Really? If your ears didn't stick out funny, you'd be happy. This is the type of critique that we make every day on God's creation. We look at it in the mirror, and it's far from what we want it to be. Now, this is not some talk against exercise and being the best physical specimen you possibly can be. But let me tell you, in our day, exercise has turned into worship of self, unfortunately for many, and it's always about five more pounds and five more pounds and five more pounds. It's always about that. It's, it's never enough. We instinctively know that our bodies were meant to be something that they now aren't. You, you admit that, right? I, I mean, we don't look like Adam looked. I hate to bust your bur bubble, man. I don't care how fit you are. If Adam walked in... You'd see how poor a specimen we really are. In his unfallen state, he was, I mean, he was massive. He was a man. And ladies, I'm married to the prettiest woman since Eve. But she's not Eve. In her unfallen state, Eve was something that no woman will ever be again in this life because of sin. Gravity hadn't taken full effect on both the man or the woman. You know what I mean if you're over 25 or so. The problem is that we will never be completely satisfied with what we are right now. Our corruptible, mortal, weak, physical bodies. We won't ever be satisfied with it. I hate to send you home like that, but it's true. And we know it. Instinctively, we know it. It gets younger and younger now. I bet Rod could attest to that. It gets younger and younger that they have to go to a counselor because at nine now, they're too fat or they're too skinny or they're awkwardly tall or they're too short or their ears aren't right or their eyes aren't right or their nose isn't perfect or they got something wrong with them. And they're destroyed completely. The physical image of the man of Adam has is doing great damage to their very personhood, who they are. That's all they can see is the outward. The Corinthians were a group of people, these people that received this letter were a group of people who believed themselves to be on a higher plane spiritually. They were higher life kind of people. You know, they had gifts in multiplicity, and they were praying for more gifts. They were spiritual, spiritual people. They were mature enough to eat meat, not offered idols, or offered idols, excuse me. And they didn't fall into idolatry. And they bragged about that to Paul, obviously, because he deals with it. There's a group, at least, of them that are still struggling with it, and Paul reprimands them about their pride to be able to eat this meat at the expense of their brothers. They were super mature, super spiritual. They were seeking to be more spiritual by gaining more knowledge. Paul attacks them in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, 
I don't care how knowledgeable you are, unless you have the Spirit, it's worthless. Unless you have spiritual knowledge, it's worthless. This was the super church of Paul's day. As a matter of fact, they could even boast that Paul spent more time with us than he did with anybody else. We must be good. Paul hung out for over 18 months with us. Some of you people didn't have him but a couple of months. You know, they never thought they had more problems than everybody else. That's why he hung around. Because they're spiritual people. And in the midst of this, they're being raised up in a, a place, in an age, where Gnosticism, that great lie, is being beginning to take root. That the spiritual is good. That's what Gnosticism is. The spiritual is good and the physical is bad. You ever heard that? Your flesh is bad. Things of the earth are bad. Spiritual essence of the thing. That's what was taking over in their day. That's what was dominating their thought life. This was what life was all about. Leaving the physical to be with the spiritual. And now Paul dares to show up on the scene with a letter, or someone brought it to them from Paul, that says, hey, guess what? <laughs> you're going to die if you're in Christ. He's going to raise your physical body back up. Now, horror of all horrors. We're going to be physical. Have bodies. Man, I've been trying to get rid of this thing. Paul says you can't be rid of it. You're going to have it again in the next life. A body. And so the Bible's strong indication all over the place, in every place, is that physical is not evil. Physical is not evil. Physical was created by God for a purpose. And we are physical beings. We are body beings. We will always have bodies. That's what the Bible teaches. And we want to see what kind of bodies will we have. They already objected to the idea of resurrection based on their thought that the teaching was undesirable in verses 12 through 19. And Paul answers that. And now they're saying it's impossible. Okay, you got us on the undesirable part, but it's still impossible. How can bodies be raised up again? I mean, I'm not a scientist. But I sat in seminary class, no joke, three straight classes three straight three-hour classes with a bunch of drivel about whether atoms can be recollected once they've been assumed into other creatures. That's trash. I mean, that's, that's, that's focusing on what Corinth was focusing on. How can he do it? You know, when you die, you, turn, you decompose. You turn into dust. The dust is eaten by... Animals, I hate to say that, whether it be at the bottom of the sea or animals on the earth, and then they take that up and then they're eaten by other animals and so these molecules get reprocessed. It's the cycle of life. How's God going to undo all that and give us our bodies back? That's what they're asking. It's impossible. I always love it when somebody says, for God, something's impossible. Don't you? Don't you? I mean, that, that always takes the cake. And there's these questions that I still get, that you get. You've asked this one, so I'm not picking on you. Would it be okay to be cremated versus being buried? You ever asked that? 
can I be cremated? I mean, it's cheaper. <laughs> well, I don't know. Can a person be burned up in a house fire? Can they burn up in a boat, sink to the bottom of the ocean? We're focusing on the wrong thing here. I mean, because what then follows that question when I say, yeah, you can be cremated. Really? How will God raise me? You do realize the crematory does what the earth does. It just takes shorter time to do it. You turn to ashes. Either way. And so we're focused on what... We laugh at Corinth, and yet we in our culture focus on the same problems they have. And partly because we haven't understood this passage, and that's where I want to go, is to answer the question, what kind of bodies? How will God do what He's going to do? And that's what I want to talk about today quickly. Four points. First of all, Paul anticipates their, the question of his opponents. He answers them with sternness. That's the first point. That's what we see in verse 35. But someone will ask. He's anticipating. No one's asked him, but he knows that's what they're going to ask. It's like children in your home. You tell them it's time to go to bed. What's the question that comes after that? Do I have to? Right? Or now? I don't know. I just thought I'd just say it. Right? And Paul's doing some of that. You anticipated his parents. You say go to bed and immediately say that means brush your teeth, put on your pajamas and get in the bed and close your eyes with the lights off and go to sleep. That's what it means. You anticipated all the 50 questions that were coming. You're tired of hearing them, right? Paul's tired of hearing questions. He's tired of hearing the continual, on and on, a new angle, a different angle. He handles that problem, another problem. He's now cutting them off. He's worn weary of all their questions. They're becoming very foolish, earthly, distracted. And Paul just says, listen, someone's going to ask me, how is it possible for the dead to be raised? He anticipates their question and notice his answer. It's not gentle. It's not kind. It's not said with a smile. It's very stern. I, I envision Paul, this beady-eyed guy, at this point in his life, having already faced the lashes, some of them, some of the struggles, the exposure that he had experienced, even at Corinth, been driven out of the synagogue and into a house next to the synagogue, and then drove, driven out of that place for preaching the gospel of Christ. And so I anticipate his frustration. Are we, you're a fool. Are we really still talking about this? He anticipates, and he is done with their questions. And so he answers their questions after the stern, you fool, with a very detailed answer. I imagine they got the letter and thought, well, that was more than we asked for. You ever been there in class, maybe, or even as a child to your parents? You asked the question, you expected the simple, why is the sky blue? Well, because it is. And instead, today, Daddy gave us the 15-minute ex explanation of how the prism of light going through all the different... You know that answer, right? And that's what Paul's about to give them, the long answer. You want to know? Okay, I'll tell you. He silences all their other questions. As far as I know, there's no other time they ask about this. They're finished. They're undone. All of their future questions are answered in this one. How can he do it? Well, okay. 
I'll give you the answer. The second thing I think we need to see is that we can understand the resurrection by simply looking at the creation around us. You can understand. You may be having questions about the resurrection. How does it apply? What will it look like? Look at the creation, Paul would say. Very simple. Very much like his Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes to the creation. In John 12, 24-25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it in eternal life. And then, imagine this. Look at verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat. Isn't it interesting that Paul mimics Christ? Christ said in John 12, talking about Himself, talking about His crucifixion, I have a body. It's like a kernel of wheat. When I'm crucified, it will be buried in the ground. And when it comes out of the ground, it will be changed. It will be what that kernel was fully going to be. And it will bear much fruit. And you and I, if you're in Christ, are the fruit that He bore. Right? So let's think about planting. I don't know. I grew up on a farm. I know many of you didn't. But you've gardened, you've put flowers out, you've done the whole bit, right? You take a small, I used to, I used to take small cotton seeds. I know he says weed, I just know about cotton better. I know more about that, okay? Pounds, 50 pound sacks of cotton seeds. A truck, an 18 wheeler truckload full of cotton seeds in 50 pound sacks. And we unloaded that and poured it into hoppers and planted it in the ground. And what was our hope of doing that? What was our hope? Cotton. Cotton seeds? No. We weren't putting them in the ground so this huge cotton seed would come out. No, if the cotton seed didn't die in the ground break open and a plant come out, we failed. It was worthless. We wasted a fortune on cotton seed. But when we put it in the ground, what was our hope? Cotton plants. We didn't want the seed back. We wanted a plant. Why? Because the plant grows into this glorious, glorious picture of what the seed was supposed to be what the seed in essence was. But you couldn't see it in the seed. It was in there. Everything, listen, everything needed to be a cotton plant was in the seed. Except, it even had nutrients in the seed. God even put nutrients in the seed. When a cotton seed breaks forth, those first two leaves are stuck together and they feed themselves for the first cycle of life. Everything needed there was there except heat, Moisture. Didn't have it. It had to come from external. It couldn't supply those two things. But when you put it in the ground, and the ground was over 76 degrees, preferably 81 degrees, that seed would germinate and sprout out. It would grow on its own source for just a little bit, and then it would begin to pull in the nutrients of the earth it was planted in, and the sun would shine on it, and it would break forth into glorious plant life Distinct from, but continuing the action of the seed. 
That's important. Not in the same form as the seed that went in the ground, but the mature, fulfilled purpose of the seed when it came from the ground. Incomplete, complete. What Paul's saying is when you put wheat in the ground, you're not looking for giant wheat seeds to come up. You're looking for a stalk. And from that stalk will come the glorious harvest which you anticipated when you planted it. Just in case we didn't get it, he gives us another example from the earth. Look at it. Do you not understand that human flesh is not like animal flesh, is not like bird flesh, is not like fish flesh? That kind of blows up the humane society's whole position on life. We're all the same. No. No, no. Animals, your dog at home, is a different flesh than you. We are more unlike an ape than we are like it. Do you know that you can starve yourself or you can overeat? And you will never be anything but what? A human. You can't become something else. You are what you are. You have your own body. You can feed a dog the most high and mighty expensive food on the market today. When it dies, what will it be? A dog. You can't become something you're not. Paul's saying, you people are straining to be spiritual and not have bodies. You can't. God gave you a body. And that body will become the glorious spiritual body which God intends. And you can't become just a spirit. You have a purpose. You have a created order. And you will hold to it. When we come forward, what will we be? We will not be angels. Won't be. Hate to trample on your prey. So many people in the church even I hear talking about, they've... They're angels now. No. They're not angels any more than your dog can become a cat. Or a fish can grow wings and fly. That's what Paul said here. When we are resurrected, we will not be angels. We will be humans in spiritual bodies. We will be what the wheat planted was intended to be. A plant of the same kind and more glory. That's what we will be. You know, we have to be careful that we don't pull in mythology into our Christianity. Roman mythology is the angels floating around with diapers, with names, on clouds, that whole bit. That's, that's not the Bible. And so he says, from a very earthly analogy, the wheat becomes a wheat plant. Humans are humans, and animals are animals, and birds are birds, and fish are fish, and heavenly bodies are are not earthly bodies. And earthly bodies are not heavenly bodies. Will I have the same body when I go into the kingdom that I have today? No. Not the same body. You have an earthly body now. You'll have a heavenly body then. A spiritual body. 
You see, he's saying God created animals to inhabit the earth. They can't inhabit the water. And those in the water can't inhabit the air. And those in the air can't inhabit and live properly without being in the air. They can't live on the earth in the water. And your earthly substance cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Not unchanged. It can't inherit eternity. It's corruptible. It's weak. It's perishing. Then he goes on to the sun. And I know some of you would say, he made a mistake. See, I knew the Bible had errors in it. The sun is a star. And Paul separates the two. Right. And we do too. Don't we? When you watch the newscast tonight, you want to see what? The sunrise? It doesn't matter to you when Beetlejuice rises into view, does it? Does it? Beetlejuice is a bigger star. It's brighter, hotter. Why is the sun important to us? Because it's a star of a whole other meaning to us, isn't it? It's our star, we might say. And Paul's doing the same thing. The sun has a different glory from the moon. The moon has a different glory from the stars. And stars differ in their own glory. Scientifically, that's true. And experientially, that is true. There are stars with as much variety as there are humans and plants and animals. Different light, different size, different power, different heat, different distance. It's a beautiful creation God has made, Paul says, and it's all made for a purpose, and it all is being used to talk to us about our coming body. So we have these earthly analogies. And third, we see that we can anticipate the fullness of our resurrection experience because we're going to look like Christ. We're going to look like Christ. Matthew 13, 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. Philippians 3, 21. Paul says, Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know... But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We can anticipate the glory of our resurrection because we've seen the glory of Christ's resurrection and we will be like Him. Listen, we're not going to go off into oblivion. We're not going to all be gathered into one huge mass of spirituality. We're going to retain our distinctiveness from one another and all of us will be like Christ. That means the uniqueness of your personality and your body will be vibrant and alive in a way we can't even really understand right now. You're going to be more like yourself than you are presently. Isn't that great? Think about it. Was Adam, when he was created... This is what Paul says. Adam was created and then he became life. Was Adam more alive when he was created or when God breathed life into him? When was he more alive? When he was just dust, man of clay, laying on the ground, no life, no animation, or when God breathed 
life into him. Well, honestly, that's easy, right? It was when God breathed life into men. What I'm saying to you is right now, as a believer in Christ, we are going to see that kind of change from our burial to our resurrection. When God breathes life into our new bodies, we will be more alive than we ever have been in this life. You take the greatest experience you've ever had in this life, whatever it might be, and it doesn't even come in sight of what you will experience when you're resurrected. That's what Paul's saying. We are in the image of Adam, the first Adam. Look at the passage. We're in the image of the first Adam who came from the dust, right? Who is natural. He is from the earth, Paul says. These are all ways he described it. Now, look back up in the passage from verse 46 and verse 45 and look back up at verse 42. Everything that matches Adam is going to be, I'm going to talk about it first, perishable. Perishable. That means you, you can die. That's what we get from Adam. We can die because we are of Adam. Dishonor. I never will get comfortable with people walking up to a casket and saying, boy, they, they look wonderful. They look so much like themselves. Not really. I mean, the best makeup artist in the world, my uncle's an undertaker. Listen, they don't look like themselves. They're dead. Let your five-year-old walk up. Your five-year-old will tell you. What's wrong with Mama? She don't look like herself, really. Mama doesn't move. It's not Mama. doesn't look like Mama. It kind of looks like Mama, but not really. The life is gone. Life is gone. Dishonor. Corruptible. Is, is there. Corruption is there. Weakness. That's what we get from Adam. Weakness. No matter how strong you are, men, you're weak. There's always something you cannot do. It's a constant reminder, isn't it, ladies? That no matter how beautiful you or husband tells you are, you're never beautiful enough. There's a weakness. There's a flaw. That's what we inherit from Adam. That's what we get from him. Is perishing, dishonorable, weak, natural bodies, things of the earth. That's what we have. But look, the passage doesn't end there. That's why we have hope. Because look what he says in verse 47. The first man was from the earth and a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So Adam was carved out of the ground and God breathed life into him. Jesus came from heaven he was eternal, into a body which was fleshly and now has returned to eternity with a body. Adam was not and became living. Christ was. He was alive. He was in heaven. He was real. He was there and he came into a body. Now look what we get from Christ. Imperishable. How do we know that this whole event of falling and sinning can't start again? Because when you're resurrected, your body can't die. And if you could sin, if anybody could sin ever again, 
we could then die, we would die, and the whole thing would start over. It can't start over when we're resurrected because we are not like Adam anymore. We are like the second Adam. We are imperishable. We have a glory. We see a glimpse of it with Moses and Elijah, with Jesus. They shine like the sun. We have a glory, which is not ours, which is Christ. We have a power. I don't want to go all science fiction on it. Although I find science fiction interesting, though I don't like watching the movies. You ever watch a science fiction movie and wonder, where does that come from? The thought of teleporting from one place to another. Superhuman attributes. Where does it come from? I don't know, but that it might not be the glimmer left in a twisted humanity of what could be and will be. There's this longing in the human soul to be imperishable, isn't there? We've been looking for the fountain of youth for how long now? And we've been turning back the clock with makeup and beautifying and tanning and all the things for how long now? There's an there's a innate desire in us to be imperishable. And we can't be in our nature, but we can be in Christ. There's a, there's a desire in us, born in us, to be glorious. But we can't be in Adam. We can't be in Christ. There's a desire to be superhuman in our strength. I wanted to be Superman when I was a little kid. I wanted my, actually my favorite was He-Man. Y'all remember He-Man from the 80s? Man, I just wanted to break loose and be He-Man. Never could be that. I don't mean to make it silly, but there's something about this supernaturalism that's sewn into the soul of man. They make cartoons about it and they write mythology about it and they, they, there's this desire. The problem is you can't be those things in your flesh. You'll never be those things in your flesh. Christ makes us imperishable. Christ makes us glorious. Christ makes us makes us powerful. Christ makes us spiritual bodies. Super spiritual bodies. Superhuman, super spiritual bodies. The first Adam went into life and the second Adam gives life. The first Adam didn't give us life. God gave us life. But the second Adam gives us life. What a beautiful way to end it. And I end with this. We should even now strive by the grace of God to be in the image of Christ. I've preached an entire sermon really just digging into the truth here and making it plain to say, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? To be like Christ. What are you waiting on? Eternity? Why are you waiting on eternity? Does the Spirit of God not live in you now? You say, Carl, I can't help it. I'm just earthly. But you're no longer bound by your sin. You've been set free. You're not a slave to sin any longer. You're now a servant of righteousness. 
So when lust rises in your heart and the opportunity for sin is there, will you be a man of the earth or will you be in the image of Christ in that moment? That's the question. Jesus didn't say, I came to die that they might have life in eternity only. What did He say? I came that they might have life and that life more abundantly. I came to die because I'm the resurrection and the life that He that is in me, though He die, yet He may live. The thought of Christ is that eternity starts at your conversion. The seed is planted and it's waiting redemption. It's waiting, waiting the resurrection. But our sanctification is not waiting for that. Let us be bearers of the image of the man of heaven. I think Paul wants us to strive after Christ. You know, two summers ago, I had the privilege of uh, being a pallbearer at a funeral. It wasn't one of those funerals that you normally are a pallbearer at. An old woman, older man, lived a great life, went to be with the Lord after years of service. It was kind of an odd thing for me. The man who discipled me, his wife who discipled Amy, called us. And I won't ever forget my wife's reaction. I was upstairs studying and I heard her calling out our friend's name, Hope, just over and over again. And I thought they were... I thought there was an excitement, like a like she may have told her she was expecting another child or something, and then that all went away quickly because I heard the tears. And I went downstairs. Amy's on the floor in our in our bathroom. I just sat down next to her. She gets off the phone and she said, "She's dead. She she's she's dead. She's died." I thought Hope's dead. You know, I was thinking about Billy. No, Elena's dead. Their four-year-old daughter. Went to bed with what they thought was a little bug. Had a little fever. Died in the middle of the night. Mother went in to wake her up. She was cold. Blue. Dead. Her body was perishable. Her body was weak. Her body didn't have glory anymore. It was gone. It was dishonored. We traveled down the next day. We sat on the front porch and I talked with Billy and he said, you know, Billy was gone. He was in Chicago at the time. He said, you know, I left and our whole plan as a family was to go on a picnic together. And Elena loved picnics. We were going to go fishing at her papa's house. And she's dead. I mean, it was, it was you mourn with those who mourn, Right? We went to the funeral, and the uh, place was packed. pastor delivered a wonderful message. I don't really remember what he said. I just remember it was good. And I was watching them, and there was this celebration, but there was this real sadness mingled together. And we went to the graveyard. I don't really like cemeteries. We walked up, gathered around, you know how you do, at the graveyard, at a funeral, at a burial. Pastor said a few words, 
And Billy came to us, the pallbearers, and said, follow me. Okay, this is kind of strange. I'd never done anything like this. And he reached down and grabbed dirt off the pile of dirt that would cover his daughter in death, in weakness, in dishonor, in perishable flesh. We all grabbed dirt off the pile with him. He held the dirt up. The only thing I really remember that was said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, the perishable shall be raised imperishable. The dishonored shall be raised in glory. The physical shall be raised a spiritual body. And that dad of that four-year-old took the dirt and placed it on his four-year-old. His casket. And we all in turn pitched our hands. The men he trusted with his family all pitched ours in on her. You say, that's morbid. No. That's glorious. Why? Because he wasn't sowing without hope. He was sowing a seed expecting a harvest. Do you see it now? The passage is real. You say, all this you've been talking about, I kind of didn't like it. It was boring. It's long. It's drawn out. Listen, when your four-year-old dies, you better already know that that which is perishable will be imperishable. You might ought to already have a conviction that when you put dirt on that casket, it's temporary. It's germinating. It's becoming what it will be as it waits for glory. If you don't have that hope, the grave digger will throw dirt there and you will go home and be miserable the rest of your life wondering what will happen, what will happen, she's gone. But Billy went home. Actually, he went back to the church. And they had the most, it was unbelievable, the most glorious party. And he mingled with his friends. It wasn't a false thing. He mingled with his friends. And he talked about his daughter. And he talked about Christ and what would be in the resurrection. So I can give you five steps to being a better daddy. But only God can give you the hope for being a daddy when your four-year-old dies. Only God can give you that. And I pray you have it. In your heart, you have this conviction of Christ that sees what is unseen and believes it more than the things you see. I mean, that's hope. That's deliverance. That's power. Let's pray. Father, you give.